Today's readings are taken from the book of Psalms. The passages are from Psalms number 49 and 62. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all you who dwell in the world, you of high degree and low, rich and poor together. Why should I be afraid in evil days, when the wickedness of those at my heels surrounds me? The wickedness of those who put their trust in their goods and boast of their great riches. We can never ransom ourselves or deliver to God the prize of our life. For the ransom of our life is so great that we should never have enough to pay it in order to live forever and ever and never see the grave. For we see that the wise die also. Like the dull and stupid, they perish and leave their wealth to those who come after them. Their graves shall be their homes forever, their dwelling places from generation to generation, though they call the lands after their own names. Even though honored, they cannot live forever. They are like the beasts that perish. Such is the way of those who foolishly trust in themselves and the end of those who delight in their own words. Like a flock of sheep, they are destined to die. Death is their shepherd. They go down straight away to the grave. Their form shall waste away, and the land of the dead shall be their home. But God will ransom my life, he will snatch me from the grasp of death. Therefore, for God alone my soul in silence waits. Truly, my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, so that I shall not be shaken. In God is my safety and my honor. God is my strong rock and refuge. Put your trust in him always, O people. Pour out your hearts before him, for God is our refuge. Those of high degree are but a fleeting breath. Even those of low estate cannot be trusted. On the scales they are lighter than a breath, all of them together. Put no trust in extortion, though wealth increased, set not your heart upon it. This is the end of the reading.
We've chosen a topic this morning, which is not the most pleasant of topics. You may have been able to tell by the reading of Scripture and by the reading of the prayer by Bishop Tutu. We've chosen a difficult passage to consider and to reflect on this morning. The text that we're going to be considering is from Luke 14. And in the next two chapels, plus today three chapels, we're going to be looking at a, at a theme within a theme, a play within a play. And we're going to be looking at passages from Luke, two from the 14th chapter of Luke and, and one from the 9th chapter. But today, here is the thesis verse, which is Luke 14, 33. Jesus speaking, he says this simply, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This ends the reading from the gospel. In the same way, no one can be my disciple, Jesus says, unless she says goodbye to all her possessions. No one can be my disciple unless he says goodbye to all his possessions. Now, couldn't he have said, it's sort of difficult, but maybe you could do it? Or, or you, can, you cannot be my disciple unless you say goodbye to a whole bunch of your possessions? Quite a bit. A few things. Those are the hard words of Jesus. And for the rest of the semester, we're going to be looking at all of the places in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you will. And if you are my disciple, you cannot. There are a number of things that Jesus is very clear about what it means to be one of his followers, one of his disciples, one of his students. That's what the word disciple means. But today we're going to look at this one. No one can be my disciple, he says, unless they say goodbye to all their possessions. You know, in the Tarman family, we have a lot of traditions. Uh, for example, I sleep with my wife every night I'm home. It's just kind of a tradition we have. And uh, we share the same bed in the same room. And we've been doing that for 27 years, and we snuggle a lot. We love to snuggle. We call it spooning. We kind of lay in the same direction. And then you kind of go like this. And we get mad at each other in the middle of the night if, uh, if the other one won't snuggle close enough or roll over just the right time. Now, that's a Tarman thing. Why do we do that? It's because we love each other. Tarmans do some other things. We take a vacation every summer, the whole family. We gather and we drive all the way to Colorado, and we go to a little log cabin in Colorado, and we spend a week or two weeks there just doing nothing except being with each other. Why is that? It's because we love each other. We set aside a whole bunch of money so that we can do that. Why? Because we love each other. So we say no to some other things in order to get this time together. It wasn't because my father said to me, Bart, if you're going to be a good family man, 
You have got to have a vacation every two weeks, and you've got to spoon with your wife at night. Now, these are just the two rules, Bart. You've got to do that. No. I'm smart. I discovered them on my own. Now, why am I telling you these silly stories from my family? Because behavior follows commitment. You see, it's because I love my wife and enjoy her. It's because I love my family and enjoy them that those two behaviors follow for us. It is love first, not behavior first. Now, the, love reinfor- the behavior reinforces the love, and the love reinforces the behavior. Well, what is it with Jesus Christ? This passage we've just read is a stinging passage. He says, you cannot be my disciples unless you say goodbye to all your possessions. I checked the Greek out on this. I'm really glad I learned Greek, because when I got it out and I parsed out all the words, it said, unless you can be my disciples... You cannot be my disciple unless you say goodbye to all your possessions. It says exactly the same thing in Greek as it says in English, which really irritated me. I thought I could find a way around it. I couldn't. Let's put a a picture up on the screen. This is a painting by uh, Michelangelo, but not the Michelangelo you're thinking of. It's Michelangelo Marisi da Carvaggio. And it's a painting that he did on the call of St. Matthew. Let's take these lights down. Take them all the way down because we need to get the contrast. They can live without seeing me. I want to explain the picture because it may still be a little difficult from back here. I'm going to step back and see how well you can see it. The person on the left-hand side, it's a confusing picture, isn't it, right off the bat? You don't quite know what's happening, but there's light streaming in from uh, the left-hand side to the right-hand side. And on the left-hand side, standing in a shadow, but you can just see his face right at the uh, line of that shadow, just below it to the extreme left, is the face of Jesus, according to this artist. And Jesus has his arm outstretched, and he's pointing at someone. And the whole picture is a hubbub. There's, there's action happening. And it's hard to take in. In fact, your eyes have to, have to sort it out and go back to the primary figure at the left-hand side before you can begin to figure out what's happening. It's Jesus, of course. And there's men sitting around a table, five men sitting around a table. And one of them... Three of them are looking up in startled form. One of them has his hand out and is pointing, it looks like to his breast, to his chest, saying, with a look of wonderment in his eyes, what What do you mean, me? Is what I picture him saying. You've got two men in the front section, or right in the middle of the picture, who've looked up from the table, and they're looking at Jesus in amazement and bewilderment. Peter is standing on this side of Jesus. You, can't, you can barely see his face, and he too has his arm sort of weakly outstretched, much like Jesus, but not quite as powerful a gesture. On the table, you may not be able to see this, are coins and money. And one of the men at the table, in fact, two of them have not even looked up. The two figures on the far right of the painting 
One is hunched over and he's, he's delicately counting coins. He's missing the whole scene because he's so focused on his money. The other one next to him and above him is looking down to be sure that the coins are being counted correctly. And those two have not even seen Jesus. They're so absorbed in the task at hand. But Matthew, who is in the center, or Levi, with the beard, is looking up at Jesus, frozen in time. In fact, a a great author in, in analyzing this painting said that this is, a, this is a snapshot, this is a moment when everything before was different and everything afterwards would be different. Jesus is pointing to Matthew and Matthew is looking up and Jesus is saying two words, follow me. Okay, now you can bring the lights up up here for a minute. But we'll keep the slide on. Follow me. Matthew looks up. Matthew was a hated tax collector. You know about tax collectors. You know that they were sympathizers with the Roman occupation, with the oppressors, that they were on the take, that they were extorting money from the people. One scholar has has estimated that the tax structure of the first century Roman Empire plus the temple tax, if you just paid those without any extortion, the tax would be up around 40% of your income. But then, of course, Matthew earned his living by taking a little more here and a little more there and a lot more here and a lot more there. In Spanish, we say mordidas, little bites. And so it was more like 50 or 60% of a person's wheat field would go into various taxes. And Matthew was hated because he was a Jew extorting money from his brethren for a foreign occupying force. And Jesus had only called four disciples up until this moment. And they were all from the same area. They'd probably grown up together. You know, this is one of the problems I think we have when we're reading the Scriptures. We tend to think that they're exhaustive. So we think that this is the first time Peter has seen Matthew. I doubt it. They were from nearby one another. They'd probably been in synagogue school together. Their mothers probably knew one another. He, they'd probably heard the, the scuttlebutt about, about Matthew's gone over. He's gone over to the Romans. He's selling them out. It's the way we would talk, maybe, or you'd hear talked about in the back part of a family, about someone in the neighborhood who's begun to do drugs, and now they're doing harder drugs. And everybody feels bad and frustrated and doesn't know what to do about it. And then as he grew in his wealth and he grew in his money, he, he shrunk in his friendships. He shrunk in his sense of self-worth, though he may have put on an arrogant front. And he felt like the least worthy Jew in Israel to follow the Messiah. The last person on earth a prophet would speak to would be this man. Because he was so in love with money that he sold out his people. It doesn't get much worse. And yet Jesus bursts through that door, puts his hand out and points right at Matthew and says, follow me. I'd like to think that Matthew was probably there when Jesus said the same thing to Peter and James and John and Andrew. When he said, follow me, and they dropped their nets and they left the the boats with the hired hands. They were businessmen, much like Jesus had been. He'd been a carpenter for 18 years. 
a businessman who at that point in his life hadn't given up everything he had. And I like to think that Matthew may have been there when, when Jesus called them off on the sidelines thinking, oh, I would love to do that. Down deep inside me, there's a desire to break away from all this greed, from this betrayal. And there's a desire to live for something greater. But I'm so hooked. I'm so, I'm so addicted, we might say today, to the wealth and what it can buy. But it just took that moment when Jesus pointed at Matthew and Matthew looked up in surprise, and the decision hung in the balance. And by the way, more than just one man's decision hung in the balance, frozen in this moment. He could have looked down. He could have gone back to counting, to greed, to hoarding. And more hung in the balance because he didn't do that. He got up from that table, it says. He left his tax booth behind, and he started to follow Jesus. He left everything behind, unlike the apostles who went back to fishing when, when Jesus died. Remember, they went back to their businesses for a while. Matthew couldn't do that. Once he left that tax booth, you better believe there was somebody else in line to take it over. When he stepped up from that table, he left it all behind except one thing. His pen. He took his pen with him. And he used that pen to write his memoirs about Jesus Christ. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. You've all read it, I hope. If he hadn't stood up from this table, the Gospel of Matthew never would have been written. Now, why did he leave everything behind is the question I want to ask this morning. Did he leave it behind because somebody wrote a rule that in order to be a good Jew, you couldn't own anything? Because he'd read somewhere in a list of, of rules that in order to be holy, you couldn't, you couldn't have any money in your pocket? No. If somebody had come up to him and said that, he would have said, get out of here and give me your tax money before you leave. He got up from that table for the love of someone greater. You know, it's interesting. In uh, this world, I've been doing a lot of reflecting more than usual on the life of Mother Teresa since she passed away. And she and her 6,000 sisters all made a decision that they would live in voluntary poverty. They would choose to live as the poor. They would choose to own nothing, not even the two saris that they own. It's not even theirs. It belongs to all the sisters. And I've, I've seen the sisters with Dr. Jaiwardana in Sri Lanka. And I've seen where they hang up one sari, which they hand wash out while they're wearing the other. And as you see it hanging up, the beautiful white sari with the blue stripes, you'll notice as the sun is coming through it, something I had never seen, it's all patched. It's darned like a sock. They're the pa and there are patches all over it. They not only just have saris, they darn them until they're practically nothing but patches. Why do they do this? Well, some people say it's because they're so holy. Well, I think there's something to that. But they tell why. This is what Mother Teresa says about it. She says, Our poverty, the poverty of the sisters and myself, should be true gospel poverty. That's an odd thought, isn't it? True good news poverty. Gentle, tender, glad, and open-hearted. 
Always ready to give an expression of love. That's not exactly the definition you've ever heard of poverty, is it? Gentle, tender, open-hearted, always ready to give an expression of love. And then listen to this. Poverty, think of her voluntary poverty as a spiritual discipline. Poverty is love before it is renunciation. Let me read that again. Stretch your minds here. Don't, don't lose me. I'm going to make you think. Poverty, before it is renunciation, is love. Poverty, voluntary poverty, this spiritual discipline of letting go of everything that you own, is first and foremost love. Before it is a renouncing of things. It's like the example I gave in the beginning. My family has a certain behavior pattern. We save our money and we say no to some other things so that we can spend two weeks together in Colorado and we drive across the desert in 101 degree heat every summer and I think, why are we doing this? It's because we love each other. It's love first and renunciation second. Matthew got up from that table not because he wanted to renounce his money, but because he sensed the love of Jesus Christ and that it was all-consuming. As I shared with you last week, I was in Ecuador two weeks ago, and I was with a a small group of young professionals. And and a young uh, computer graphics specialist in Ecuador, we were reading the passage from Jesus where Jesus says, don't, no one can be loyal to two masters. He's bound to hate the one and love the other or support the one and despise the other. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can spoil them and thieves can break in and steal. But rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there's neither moth nor rust to spoil and thieves can't break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, Jesus says in that passage, there will your heart be also. And we were studying that passage two weeks ago in Ecuador. And this young computer graphics man looked up. He's about 30 years old. And and, and he's reflecting on this verse that, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he said something I thought was tremendous and profound. He said this. It's like, he said, it's, it's, it seems to me it's like this. He said, whatever you want to possess, will ultimately wind up possessing you. And you will become like it. Let me say that again. You think about it in your life. Whatever you want to possess will ultimately wind up possessing you and you will become like it. Some people want to possess a high from drugs. Ultimately, if they keep pursuing that, drugs wind up possessing them and they become like the drug. Believe me, I know because I've counsel many people, and there's a saying in the counseling profession that when somebody still has an addiction and a drug in their body and the chemical is still there and they haven't been detoxed, you may as well forget talking to them because you're talking to a drug. And it's true. But what if you choose love? What if you choose Christ? What if you say, I want to be possessed, I want to possess Jesus Christ, then you'll wind up being possessed by Jesus Christ. And that's a possession you never want to be exercised from. And you will become like him. Your life will begin to look like his. In your context, with your goals, with your heart, with your mind, with your gifts, and with your flaws. Jesus said, 
You cannot be my disciple unless you say goodbye to all your possessions. Well, what does this mean? I think it means that we decide to become enthralled with a greater love. In 1983, I was here in Santa Barbara. I was a new young pastor. I had three children. We'd moved here from Colorado. And nobody had told me what houses cost here. So I thought I was getting a pretty good salary. And, you know, and then we bought this house. And I went from a 200 and something a dollar a month payment to a $1,300 a month payment. And I just couldn't even believe it. And that was uh, 16 years ago. So after about six months or eight months, I went and my savings was gone, what little I had. I went to the pastor, the senior, my senior pastor, and I said, hey, we're going down, you know, X hundred dollars a month. And, I, you know, I, maybe, and I showed him my family budget. I'll never forget on this paper and groceries and rent and all this stuff. And, and I said, can you find something here? Maybe I'm just being selfish and I can't spot, you know, and I, I, we need to cut back. But I, we've been cutting and we're down to the bare bones as best we can see it. But maybe we're missing something. And I truly expected him to say, you greedy little guy. No, I, I truly expected him to say, here, I'm going to show you how to pare this down a little more. He didn't. He said, gosh, I think you're doing a pretty good job here, which was encouraging to hear because I was assuming we weren't. And he said, can I show this to one of our elders? Well, that made me a little nervous having my family budget out on the table in front of somebody else. But I said, okay. And I assumed it would be so that this elder would then figure out where we were overspending and help us start to cut back more. Well, then the elder called me, and he was a very powerful businessman, a multi-multi-millionaire who studied the New Testament in the original Greek. When I was with him and we'd be studying the Bible, he'd be reading from the Greek often. He'd memorize more of the Scripture than, than I, you can imagine. And he had this deep love for Christ and the world. And yet he was a multi-multi-millionaire. But he was really tough. He, had, he started, founded a Fortune 500 company in his garage in the, in the early 1940s. So he met with me, and I was assuming he was going to say, Well, Bart, look, you're ordering a newspaper. That's eight bucks a month. Cut that thing out, buddy. You know what he said? He said, Bart, I think you're doing a great job here on the budget. He says, Do you think God has called you to be here? I said, I think so, but he's also called me to pay my bills. And he said, I agree. And he said, uh, and I've never said this publicly. He's passed away now, and I feel free to say this. So he said, well, I'd like to do something. Let me pray about it for a few weeks. And I thought he meant analyze it a little further. He came back and he said, how much do you owe on your house? I said, about $90,000. He said, okay, I'll get back to you. Another week or two goes by. He said, comes back and he says, okay, I'm going to pay off the loan on your house. All $90,000. And then you're going to owe me $90,000. First, I thought it was good news. And then he says, and then you're going to owe me $90,000. <laughs> but he says, but instead of owing me, I'm going to give that loan to a Christ-centered organization that spreads the gospel all over the world. And so now you'll owe them $90,000. But when I give the loan to them, I'm going to ask them not to charge you any interest. Well, you know, about 60% of your loan payment is interest. And he says, you pick the amount you can pay them each month and then just pay that. And if you can ever make it more, make it more. If you can't, it's no problem. Just keep paying monthly. 
So we figured out what we were short. We took our old payment, subtracted what we were short, and said, we'll pay this Christ-centered organization this much money a month. And we've been doing that for about 16 years now. And that loan has plummeted because it was no interest. And every month, that group has been getting that money to use to spread the gospel. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did this man, this multimillionaire, was he a disciple of Jesus? He certainly hadn't physically given up everything. I think he was. I think I knew him well enough that if Jesus came to him like he went to Matthew or like the rich young ruler and said, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, I have a feeling this man would have done it. But Jesus didn't ask him to do that. He just asked him to say goodbye to all his possessions. So he said goodbye to $90,000 just like that. He didn't get a penny off that. To, for, for a little associate chaplain or associate pastor at a little Presbyterian church in Podunk, USA. He said, do you think you're called to be here? I said, I think so. He said, okay, I'll pay off the loan. Well, that was a tremendous change in my life. We, I was ready to move back to Denver because I knew I could afford to live there. And that was my plan if we couldn't work it out. Because I know that we're supposed to honor God by the way we pay our bills. You see, he was in love with Jesus Christ, and he held his possessions openly because he didn't see them as his possessions. Instead of saying, this is my book, he said, this is a book God has given to me. And I can take this book and I can give it to somebody just as easily as I can hold it and read it. And Jesus says, that's what a disciple of mine will be like. Now, I need to say the other side to this, though. If I had a dollar for every person that I've heard who said, I'm going to get rich so that I can give it to the kingdom, I'd be rich if I had a buck for every one of those. I've been around following Christ for 30 years, and I've heard a lot of young people say, I'm going to become the CEO of that company, and then I'm just going to give lots of money away. And I would say I can think of about three that I know who've actually done it. And I can think of hundreds for whom that was their goal. And I believe they were sincere. I don't think they were phony. I think they meant it. But something happened along the way, and what they were trying to possess began to possess them, and they became like it. Greedy, self-centered, always, always future-oriented, so it was never quite the right time to give it away. Because if you could just let it earn a little bit more interest, then just think what you could give away five years from now. So there's a danger in not taking this absolutely literally. But there's a danger in taking it literally as well. So let me close with this. In the picture, you see Matthew responding to Jesus. And the fact that right after this picture, he got up and left all of his goods behind is a secondary issue. It is the result of his captivating love for Jesus Christ. And I would say this to you, nothing should withhold you from getting up from whatever table it is in your life to follow Jesus Christ. And everything that you supposedly own should be held like this. So that if Jesus says, excuse me, I need that over here, you say, of course, Lord. Open-handed, open-hearted, with an open life, 
because of a deeper love for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to grow in our trust of Jesus Christ. Help us to believe the unbelievable. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.